think of someone who has really done you wrong, right? A, a coworker who stabbed you in the back, maybe an annoying parent of, of your kid's teammate, um, who just sucks the fun out of the game, or a difficult neighbor who leaves their barking dog out all night, or you've got a lousy, good-for-nothing cheating spouse. Or how about the kid at school who posts all kinds of lies about you on social media? Well, there are certain revenge websites that can plan you the perfect payback. You go to one of these sites and you can order a dozen dead and wilted roses or a box of melted and rotten chocolates or even a dead smelly fish and, and then you have them anonymously mailed. You can get rude bumper stickers, phony parking tickets, fake winning lottery stubs. You can send the object of your ire a box of cow manure or doggy do or simply annoy them with anonymous text messages, fake emails and nuisance phone calls. There's a gal who calls herself the revenge lady and she offers the following advice on seeking revenge. Get mad and then get even. It's justice, plain and simple. Number two, revenge is healthy. Don't listen to those mealy mouths who tell you otherwise. You're teaching people to behave better. At the same time, you're getting icky poisonous feelings out of your system once and for all. What could be healthier? Number three, revenge is excellent self-therapy, and it's far cheaper than a therapist and much healthier than pigging out on a box of donuts. Well, the revenge lady couldn't be more wrong, but more about that in a little bit. But there's something about our sinful human nature that right, we certainly like to get back. We we like to get even, right? And we we demand our rights. And, and we want to give others what we feel they've got coming to them. But then Jesus comes along and he says, no. Instead, he calls us to be generous with grace, right? Giving others undeserved favor, right? Instead of getting even, he calls us to show others the very same love that he showed us, a love unearned and, and undeserved. And so this week we come to what really is one of the more difficult passages in the Sermon on the Mount. Not because it's terribly confusing, but it's just, it's hard to live. Now our passage is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Um, and it may very well be one of the more difficult passages, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but all of Scripture. Here's what our Savior says. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, then hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, as we've seen repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he is quoting usually directly from the Old Testament, and that's the case here. 
In fact, three times in the law, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, it talks about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In fact, this is one of the oldest law codes um, in the books, and not just the law of Moses, but but of any human culture or civilization. It is known as Lex Talionis, um, the law of retribution. And it goes back, the, the oldest date that we know of is more than 4,000 years. Its earliest mention is in the Code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian king who reigned before the time of Moses. Now, Lex Talionis meant that Whatever wrong that you did to someone else, that same thing should be done to you in return. So if you cause someone to lose an eye, uh, you should lose an eye. If you cause someone to lose a tooth, then you should lose the tooth. Now, it wasn't always applied literally. In fact, the Old Testament, uh, there was a price equivalent set for many offenses. So if you were guilty of one of those infractions, you would pay the financial equivalent in retribution. Now, this legal principle served a couple of purposes. One of them was to prevent vigilante justice and endless cycles of revenge. This is one thing where the revenge lady gets wrong. She says that revenge is just as plain and simple, but it's not. Because what usually happens is um, one side issues payback or what they think is just revenge, but then the other side thinks they're wrong, and so it just ratchets up, and it just goes back and forth. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that, that Lex Talionis was a judicial law that belonged in the court system. It was a legal principle that was to be applied by judges in deciding cases. Eye for an eye was never intended to be a license for individuals to take the law into their own hands. In fact, the law of Moses forbade people uh, to personally exact justice. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in Proverbs 24.29, we read, uh, Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. Justice was to be done in the courts, by the courts, not by you as an individual de deciding for yourself uh, what was someone's just deserts. Now, a second purpose of this law uh, was to ensure that justice, in fact, was done and it served as a deterrent for future crime. And it ensured that the, that the crime was punished and that the punishment fit the crime. It established, well, proportional justice. On the one hand, courts weren't to be too lenient and give criminals, you know, just a disapproving look. Don't do that anymore. For instance, Deuteronomy 19.20 gives some of the reasoning behind this. The rest of the people will hear this, you know, hear of the punishment and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. But on the other hand, the courts weren't to inflict excessive sentences, far more severe than the infraction, because in either case, too lenient or too excessive, the people will begin to resent their leaders and they will rise up against them. And, and this is when society breaks down. So proportional justice, the, the punishment fits the crime, 
was seen as foundational to a strong nation. Now, I think we can see the impact that, that both of these extremes have in our own country, right? Whether it's lenient judges who, who let criminals off with nothing more than a slap on the wrist, or sometimes out of control law enforcement who abuse their position and their power. If we listen to God's word, it can guide a nation. Now, if eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, if that had stayed in the courts as a part of the judicial system, as a standard of civil justice, then Jesus probably would never have needed to say what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount, because even in the New Testament, we read that the purpose of the civil authorities was to punish evildoers. Um, so it served a purpose. However, the religious leaders, such as the Pharisees, they took this principle, they took this Old Testament law, and they twisted it, like we've seen so often, into something that, well, God never intended. The religious leaders used Lex Talionis as, as a guide for personal conduct. In fact, they even saw it as a command to get even, a justification for personal revenge. I'll get my eye. I'll get my tooth. And they were taking the law into their own hands. Now, this is where I go from just preaching to, to meddling. Our problem is we always think that the other guy started it, that the other person's more at fault than us, right? We think that they bear the bulk of the blame. And so we have the right to just a little bit more before we're even. The problem comes is that the other person thinks, well, that we started it or we bear the majority of the blame. And so taking the law into our own hands starts an ever growing, a snowballing cycle of revenge. In the movie Fiddler on the Roof, after the villagers are evicted, they're discussing their response and an angry villager shouts, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And the wise old man Tevye said, well, very good. And the whole world will be blind and toothless. Our selfish human nature, we're never satisfied with getting even. We want a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. We want to get them back just one better than they got us. Right? You start the fight, I'll finish it. And it starts with tit for tat. But then we try to one-up the other person. It escalates from there. In Genesis 4.15, for instance, Lamech boasts to his wives that he killed a man merely for wounding him. Right? That's not proportional justice. And that's what revenge so often does. In 1878, Randolph McCoy claimed that Floyd Hatfield's pig was his because it was on his land. Well, of course, Randolph McCoy disputed the claim and the matter uh, ended up in the court. Well, Bill Stanton, a relative of both men, testified on behalf of Floyd Hatfield. And then in June 1880, Stanton was killed by two McCoy brothers, Sam and Paris, and then they were both acquitted on self-defense. 
Later on, Rosanna McCoy began an affair, affair with John Z. Hatfield. John Z. was then kidnapped by the McCoys, but John Z. was then saved when William Hatfield organized a rescue party. Then in 1882, Ellison Hatfield, brother of William Hatfield, was brutally murdered by three of Rosanna McCoy's brothers. He was stabbed 26 times and then shot. Three brothers were then murdered by members of the Hatfield family. The vendetta continued to escalate over the next 10 years. More than a dozen people were killed throughout the feud. There were kidnappings, arsons, illegal extradition, several terms of life imprisonment, a public hanging. The Supreme Court got involved. The governors of both Kentucky and West Virginia called in the National Guard to restore order after the disappearance of several bounty hunters that were sent in to calm the situation. Right? And this all started over one stupid pig. Well, Jesus doesn't want you and I to get caught in this same cycle of revenge. And so he calls us from revenge to grace. Instead of an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Whoa, wait, what, Jesus? Surely I didn't hear you correctly. You didn't mean that, did you? Now, when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, again, he's not talking about the courts. He's not talking about society as a whole and justice that is supposed to be ensured by the civil authorities. He's not saying that we should let evil triumph in society, that we left threat, theft or crime or violence run rampant. Jesus is talking about personal revenge where we take justice out of the courts and out of the hands of proper authorities to exact our own private retaliation. Jesus is correcting the Pharisees' misapplication, saying that we are not to seek re retaliation or revenge. We are not to play judge, jury, and executioner when others have wronged us. And when we exact personal revenge, it it only lowers us to their level. And instead of getting even with those who wronged us, Jesus wants us to live you know, to a higher level. And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verses 23 and 24, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When we respond with grace instead of revenge, we are tapping directly into the love and grace of Jesus. And we're putting his love on display. We're demonstrating it in action. We are pointing the way to the Savior, giving people the opposite of what they deserve. Uh, I think it was um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who called this a visible participation in the cross. Right? When you do this, it connects you to Jesus. Now, if there has been some confusion about 
what Jesus means here, especially um, when it comes to these examples. But he gives us these examples to show us what he is talking about. And when we put ourselves in the sandals of a first century Jew, his examples here make perfect sense. For the sake of the cross, for the sake of Jesus, and for the sake of the kingdom, we can suffer loss. We can endure personal insults for the sake of a greater good. And Jesus lists four areas that we don't need to seek revenge. We don't need to retaliate for wrongs suffered. The first area that Jesus identifies is our personal dignity. Verse 39, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this isn't describing a violent assault. All right, this was a, a backhanded slap with the right hand across your right cheek. All right, this wasn't intended as an injury. It was intended as an insult. I don't think this deals with self-defense or is Jesus is saying that we have to endure, you know, physical violence or a physical assault. In the ancient Near East, striking someone on the right cheek was well, considered the highest form of a personal insult. You know, it's kind of like giving somebody the finger. It was an act of spite attacking their dignity and their honor. So what Jesus is saying here is, we are not to return insult for insult. All right, think of the typical traffic encounter where somebody cuts somebody off or runs a light or something. Somebody blares the horn, the other person flips the bird, and it, yeah, you get the idea. First Peter 3.9 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. All right, so Jesus isn't saying just grin and bear it, just take the insults. He's saying when you take an insult, all right, and when you take an insult because of me, you're going to get something in return, all right? You're going to be repaid. You will receive a blessing. It just won't be the immediate satisfaction of giving them a piece of your mind. And do you think in that moment, the other person really quite cares? You're like, oh, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. The second thing that we're willing to give up when we suffer wrong, according to Jesus here, are our personal rights. I mean, we're Americans. We demand our rights. We insist on them. It's my right. The founders of our nation recognize the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In modern America, however, that list of rights has gotten longer and longer. Women's rights, civil rights, children's rights, students' rights, workers' rights, and the list goes on and on. Well, when one of our perceived rights gets trampled on, we get angry. Why well, have my rights? What Jesus says here is, well, there are some things that are more important than your rights. I know I'm, I'm unpatriotic. I'm un-American for even suggesting this. But for the sake of relationships and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus, 
the best thing that we can do many times is to to lay aside our rights. Right? It might be your right, but that doesn't mean you have to get your way. In verse 40, Jesus says, and if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, what's he getting at here? Well, allow me to, to quote John MacArthur here from his commentary on Matthew. Jesus is not speaking of a robbery in which a person tries to steal your clothes, but he's talking about the legitimate claim of anyone who wants to sue you. When a person had no money or other possessions, the court would often require the fine or judgment to be paid in clothing. Well, the attitude of a kingdom citizen, of one who is truly righteous, should be a willingness to surrender even one's coat. If his extremely, value, his extremely valuable outer garment, rather than cause offense or hard feelings with an adversary, the court could not demand the coat, but it could be voluntarily given to meet the required debt. And that's precisely what Jesus was saying we should be willing to do. So they're suing you. They have a legitimate rightful claim. Jesus says we need to go above and beyond to make matters right. That's when, you know, they have something against us. A third thing that Jesus says is expendable for his sake and for the sake of the kingdom is our personal liberty, our freedom. Now, God's original intention was for humanity to live in freedom, everyone. I mean, the Garden of Eden had only one law. You weren't to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was the only rule, right? You were free to do anything else. Everything else was an area of freedom. But once sin enters the picture, we begin to lose that freedom. And there has to be more rules and more limits. You see, bondage and oppression they're both the results of sin. They're not a part of God's plan. The best of human governments can try to secure and protect some of the most basic rights and freedoms for their people, but even the best of human governments fall short. They may make unfair demands on their people. They may have some unjust laws. As important as freedom is, it isn't the most important thing, and it isn't more important than doing what is right. And it isn't worth protecting our personal freedom if it costs us our Christian witness. So in verse 41, Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, first century Israel was under Roman occupation. And there was a Roman law that was designed to give relief to its soldiers. So by law, any Roman soldier could commandeer a civilian to carry their weapons and equipment for one Roman mile, which was a thousand paces. You know, in police shows and movies, we often see, you know, uh, the good guy flashes badge and hey, I'm a police officer. I'm commandeering your vehicle. And, you know, in the movies anyway, well, you've got to give up your car. Well, in the ancient world, if the Roman soldier came up to you and says, I need you to carry this for one mile, you were le legally obligated to carry the soldier's pack. Um, 
thing is that Roman soldiers were despised as oppressors, but they were never more hated than when they forced you to carry their pack. But then here comes our Savior saying, you know what, not only should you carry their pack, but you shouldn't do it begrudgingly. You should happily carry it, and not just the required mile, but another thousand paces, because it's the loving, giving thing to do. Whoa, Jesus, hold up. This is tough stuff. How can we do this? We all have obligations that I don't just get on our nerves. They grate at us. We we dread it. We hate doing it. Maybe it's some state requirement, right? FAFSA, anyone going to the DMV? Maybe it's a stupid school rule or it's some nitpicky regulation at work or a stupid policy of your company that you work for. How do we do those things? How do you do those things that you feel like you shouldn't have to do them, or you just, you don't like doing them. Clench your jaw, ball your fists, mumble under your breath. Do you find all sorts of ways to, to get out of it? Do you fantasize about, well, all of the things that you're going to say when you finally tell them off? I know I do. Do you do little things? to show your displeasure. Listen to this. Our Savior Jesus says that that the attitude that we display when we're asked to do something that we think is unfair or unreasonable is more important than our personal liberty. So when someone steals a bit of our personal liberty by asking us to do something unfair, Instead of revenge, instead of retaliation, instead of letting them know, we're willing to to graciously go beyond what is required if we need to. We do this because we know that in Jesus, we have a freedom that is far more precious than, than anything the world could ever take away from us. All right? Jesus isn't done yet. And it seems with each example that Jesus is probing to ever more sensitive areas. It's like a doctor saying, does this hurt? Does this hurt? How about now? And as he gets a little closer to the area, we go, a little. Ooh, yeah. Ouch, that hurts. Well, as Jesus probes ever closer to the core of our sinful nature, He's getting to that spot that's infected with pride where we say, ouch, Jesus, that hurts. And as red-blooded Americans, we really like our stuff. And yet that's exactly where Jesus probes next. Listen to what he says in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, again, Jesus isn't saying that that we need to give away all of our stuff to any and every stranger who asks or respond to every foolish and selfish request. Right? If that was the case, five minutes in East St. Louis would clean you out. Jesus isn't asking us to enable the shift, shiftless in their laziness. 
but we should be willing to help out others out of the resources that God has blessed us with. And to understand what Jesus was talking about, we need to understand his words in the context, the same context as those who first heard him speak them. Now, the Jews understood that the law of Moses asked them to help those in need who asked for help. So Jesus' words here assume that that the one asking has a genuine need, right? This isn't, again, someone stealing your stuff. They're asking with the intent of borrowing it. Hey, can I use your lawnmower, right? Can we borrow that for a while, right? They intend to return it. They intend to pay it back. But Jesus' point is that when we help someone in need, it shouldn't matter whether or not they can pay it back, right? That's not the important part. But again, possessiveness is a part of our human nature. We love to gain and hoard and acquire, and we hate to lose it. We don't want to give it up, even temporarily if it's ours. And there's this, this fear that we might not get it back. But again, we have to remember that there is a reward that only Christ can repay. Again, I, I quote from John MacArthur here, even as Christians, we often forget that nothing truly belongs to us and that we're only stewards of what belongs to God. But as far as other people are concerned, we do have a right to keep that which we possess. By right, it is ours to use of or dispose of as we see fit. But that right, too, should be placed on the altar of obedience to Christ if required. But Jesus' purpose here in this passage isn't to redefine civil justice, but to redefine our personal relationships. We're not to selfishly seek revenge or retaliation. Rather, we are to extend a generous grace, all because of what Jesus has done for us and because of what he wants to do through us. Right? We can take an insult. Right? We can have our rights violated. We can go the extra mile. We can freely give to those in need, even if they can't pay us back. There's still that inner voice inside that wants to scream, but it's not fair. It's not right. What about the wrong they did? What about justice? They can't just get away with it. Let me give you a theological reason, two of them actually, why we can turn the other cheek, why we can go the extra mile, even when it's not fair. The first reason is this, God's wrath, right? That, that God will judge with justice someday. God is the one who's going to handle righting all of the wrongs, and he will set all things right in his time and in his way. And might I, might I add, in his perfect time and in his perfect way, much better than you and I ever will. In Romans 17, or Romans 12, 17 through 21, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is in the right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for 
God's wrath, all right? When we take revenge, that takes away from God's justice, right? That takes away from, from God setting things right in his best time and best way. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and here's what you and I are called to do, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I know this runs against the grain. It goes against the very fiber of our being. And yet there is deep theological truth here. It might not make sense to us, but it works. It works because it is true. And if revenge was the right way and it always worked, wouldn't our society be a lot better off than it is? It's obvious that taking justice into our own hands and trying to, to set justice according to our own scales, it doesn't work very well. So we need to leave room for God's wrath. Let God take care of it. But there's a second reason why you and I don't need to seek revenge or retaliate, and that is because of forgiveness. Right? God didn't seek revenge on us. Instead, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Right? While we were still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for me, and he died for you. He forgave us even while we were enemies. And Jesus says that when we pass that forgiveness on to others, it will draw more people to him. It puts Jesus on display. When you forgive, your life becomes a platform, a pedestal for the grace of God. Thank you. And God bless.